2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta This is City Lights I'm Lois Wrights Thank you for listening Baskerville is a comic mystery based on the most famous case of the world's most famous detective The Sherlock Holmes mystery is opening at theatrical outfit as their holiday offering Later this hour John Keebler tells us about his excitement playing the role of Sherlock Holmes, and we'll hear how the wonderfully wacky Gina Hickey takes on 14 different roles in this comedy production. First, the documentary Refuge is set in the most diverse square mile in America, 20 minutes outside of Atlanta, Clarkston, Georgia. The film begins with a disturbing depiction of hatred and moves toward redemption as the story progresses. Aaron Bernhardt and Din Blankenship produced and directed Refuge. They join me now via Zoom with a major character in the film, Dr. Haval Kelly, Welcome to City Lights.
3: Thank you for having
2: us. Erin, I know this production has been a long time coming. How many years did it take the team to finalize the documentary?
1: That's right, Lois, because you had us on your show at the beginning four years ago.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) So it has been a while. Um, Charlottesville in August of 2017 um, was sort of our catalyst to really hit the ground running in the Clarkston community on this film. And it's evolved a lot since then. So we thought it would probably be a one-year project and instead it's going on four and a half.
2: Well, I wondered, How many years you needed for the trajectory of the story and how much had to do with COVID pushing the deadline?
1: It was definitely both of those things. I think we set out to tell a film about Clarkston and the community um, and how people there deliberately choose love and welcome and acceptance rather than hate, Um, because we wanted to show kind of the counter narrative to what had happened in Charlottesville, which Din and I both went to the University of Virginia. And so that's why we were so passionate about that community. I think if we would have stayed doing that, (laughs) it could have happened more quickly. But Haval ended up having something really extraordinary happen in his life, and his real life, and as documentary filmmakers, we just chose to continue following what was happening in his life when he met Chris Buckley. And then, you're right, we could have, and should have been able to finish the film probably a year and a half earlier, but COVID hit right before our final film shoots, and so we got put on hold for a very, very long time.
2: Din or Aaron, can you tell us about the main characters?
1: Yeah,
3: for sure. As Aaron mentioned, when we started making this film, we were really focused on the community of Clarkston and had been following several individuals there, one of which is Haval, who you will hear from more. And our other main character in Clarkston, who you see in the film, is Mama Amina. And she's become this kind of mother of the community of Clarkston and, and um, really takes care of and advocates for Um, the people who live in Clarkston and so they had been two of the main um, subjects of the film and then when Haval told us one day he'd been connected to uh, Chris Buckley who recently left the KKK he had been the number two in the KKK in the state of Georgia he's a combat veteran and Chris just really really hated Muslims and He and Haval had been connected through a mutual friend, which Haval can tell you more about that. But Haval felt like he really wanted to go meet Chris and help kind of disprove some of the false narratives that Chris had built around Islam and the Muslim people. So the film follows Chris and Haval kind of as they encounter one another.
2: Haval, you drove up to Lafayette, Georgia to meet Chris and his family. What were your thoughts when when you first met?
0: Well, you know, it was very interesting. Like, you know, i never been to an area like where Chris was. And it was my first time meeting people from, you know, the rural counties in Georgia. But the only reason I wanted to go meet him, because at that time there was a lot of misconception about refugees and hatred toward refugees and immigrants. And I wanted to, instead of being you know, part of the division, I wanted to be facing the other side, but also wanted to face the extreme side where people really hate people like me and say, okay, well, what, what can I do to understand the hatred toward someone like me who came to this country? So through Arno, who was a, actually a former skinhead leader, and I met him through a conference, and I talked to him about my worries about our country and how we're getting divided. And he's like, well, if you want to do something," I can introduce you to this KKK member. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. This is probably too much at what first. And, you know, we talked first on Facebook and started having conversations and eventually find out he was a veteran. And I happened to work, when I was a fellow at Emory, I used to moonlight in the VA and help out in the emergency room. And, you know, I became much closer to the veteran community. And so we had something common to discuss. And when I when I showed up at his house in Lafayette, Georgia, I just showed up like going to any Kurdish home. You know, in our culture, when you show up to a Kurdish house, you bring gifts and food, and that's what I did. I was just being myself showing up there and we just started talking when we met for the first time offline.
2: Well, I have to tell you because the opening of the film where we learn about Chris's involvement with the Clan and observe him with his children, which I found chilling. When you knocked on his door, I felt frightened for you. Were you scared?
0: I don't think I was scared. I was more nervous. Uh, it must be, you know, having the Kurdish heart not to be afraid. You know, when you're a refugee, you go through a lot to be. In a country like America, when you're a Kurdish person, you go through a lot of suffering through your life as a Kurd. And so I thought maybe he was more afraid of someone like me. And I just feel like sometimes hatreds could be
3: based on fear. And then I was like, hey, look, man, I'd, I'd love to come and visit you. That heightened alert kicked in, it's like danger. But I knew Melissa really wanted to see me succeed. <laughs> the, the things that I, I put her through during my addiction and my time in the white supremacist movement,
4: like, that took a toll on her.
3: And I feel obligated to her, to myself, and everybody that, that I've ever harmed to fix this. I was more worried about him.
0: He was very nervous when he met me. So I was more like, I felt like I, I was playing a little bit the doctor here to calm down the patients. You know, everything's okay. Let's talk about what's going on. I felt I had to play that role at the beginning with him just to have him relax, you know, and, and calm down. I mean, that's what I do in my job. I deal with emergencies all the time and have to calm down the family and the patient so I could focus on the mm. solutions.
2: But you are dealing with something so intensely personal here. You know, a man who had no problem stating that white people suffer more than anyone in this country. You've known a different side of life. I was struck by something you said in the film, driving around Lafayette. You said that Chris is a reflection of the forgotten America. It's like living in a camp without borders.
0: I'm glad I came because I learned something totally different than I expected. I didn't know like this existed. Really what touched my heart and broke my heart is like, it's not fair that Americans live like this. Chris is like reflection of the forgotten America. They're living in a camp that doesn't have no borders, it's called poverty. When people watch that immigrants are successful, now they understand the other side why they're getting angry. Because if they live like this and they see their own people are still in hunger and struggling, they're like, why are we not getting the help?
2: And and just the revelation that was for you and arriving at that commonality, it, it was a very powerful moment in the film. You mentioned Arno the former skinhead he is an extremism interventionist is is that what he's called
0: yes exactly and he is a that's what he does now like he helps people to leave extremist group and find ways to take the experience in a positive way and help others and he was a driver for a lot of the work that chris and i started doing and how we met
2: Is that a job? I mean, does someone fund that? Or is that strictly volunteer effort because of a desire for better understanding?
0: It is mostly like, you know, funded for a speaking engagement and involvement. And, you know, unfortunately, how the system works, you have to have a nonprofit and proposal. And I feel like, you know, in these times, we need more people like Arno. So, Finding ways to fund people like Anno is difficult, but historically, that's how people used to get funded. Individuals will get funded for their work to make a difference in the community. And more so in our modern time right now, you have to have, I guess, a nonprofit, a proposal and and all of that to get the funding. And by the time you get the funding, 90% of that goes to the logistical purpose instead of actually the actual work. And Anno is a prime example that he actually does the work 100% and makes a difference one by one and it scales it up to more people. I mean he's probably the reason why many people left all these extremist groups and making a difference in our country.
2: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright's speaking with Refuge filmmakers Aaron Bernhardt and Din Blankenship. Also joining our conversation is Dr. Haval Kelly, who plays a leading role in the documentary. Well, this might be a moment for Din and Aaron to come in because it struck me that were it not for Chris's wife, this understanding and and moment of redemption could not have come about because how do you convert people from hate groups if they're not interested in leaving groups like the Klan.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Melissa, we often say Melissa is the hero of the story. I mean, Chris would not be where he is if it weren't for her dedication to him and her knowing the man that he is and the man that he could be and getting help.
5: Chris had asked me, he's like, hey, why don't you try to join? And I was like, no, I don't want no part of this. I told him, I said, you have a choice. It's me and these kids or the client.
3: You know, and I also want to piggyback off of something Haval was just talking about, that um, There Our impact partner, Parents for Peace, does exactly this work that you were asking about, where they are actively working with people who are in hate groups and trying to leave them, and hate groups across the spectrum, from jihadists to white nationalists to the far left and everything in between, and um, so they, are, Chris actually works for Parents for Peace now and is working with people who are trying to leave hate groups and supporting family members who are trying to figure out how to help de-radicalize their loved ones. So Parents for Peace is such a hugely important organization that has boots on the ground. And they're also working at the policy level, how can we look systemically to help prevent and treat radicalism across the country.
2: There's such a beautiful moment with Mama Amina. Is she referred to as the grandmother of Clarkston? And I think, Hvald, do you introduce her as the Mother Teresa of Clarkston? Yeah, exactly.
0: I mean, I try to always find a way to describe her character. And the closest person will be the character of Mother Teresa and how she dedicate her life to help people. And that's, you know, that's what uh, Amina is.
6: Me, they call me sometimes ambassador of crack store, grandmother of crack store, queen of cracks. uh, But my favorite, mama Amina. I love to be mama of everybody. I'm 89 years old. I feel like, oh my God, I'm like 21.
2: I think she lives up to that beyond Clarkston's borders. But there's such a beautiful moment, Hivala's, when your mother gives Melissa, Chris's wife, a scarf that she puts on her like a haji. And the, the love that is flowing between them is astonishing to witness. Was that something that you just happened to be filming? Or uh, forgive me if I'm, I'm pulling the curtain back here on Erin and Din, or was that just one of those lucky moments? Or did you ask her to open the gift no, in that, front of that you? No, that
1: actually just happened. So, Haval, do you wanna kind of explain the the Ramadan iftar dinner that you had? And then I can explain kind of the filming process and how lucky we got.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do, you know, and again, I'm a Muslim, you know, and a Kurd and I wanna, you know, I'm not by many means very religious, but I wanted to introduce Islam in a way to to non-Muslim and American in a very relaxed environment so everyone could engage. And and the idea came back, I think three four years ago it was like let's do a community iftar which means we break our fast together and and one of the things was difficult to do at the mosque but the mosque you know the women and the men have to eat separate like I mean they usually pray separately so the best place I thought about to do it was refuge coffee which is an open space and they were very welcoming so I think our first iftar we just made a flyer and asked people to bring a food to share you know of course no pork, no alcohol and we had 500 people show up. And the second time when Aaron and them filmed it, that was about, I think, 700 people showed up. I mean, and everyone just broke their fast together and celebrated, you know, Ramadan's, you know, iftar. And at that time, Chris came and I invited him to come. And and he was actually very nervous. He kept asking me what he wants to cook and bring. And I think I remember he, he brought like banana pudding at that time and you know it was you know it was pretty cool and then his wife came and she was very engaged with everyone and at that time there were like a station where you could wear a hijab and try the hijab the head cover and see how it feels and all you know a lot of non-muslim americans were trying and my mom asked melissa do you want to try she's like sure and so my mom put her on her, and you know that was that moment that was captured it was very natural and i think you know that moment explains how as a human we should talk to each other if there's really not truly an agenda or a strategy or plan to change then really naturally the human process takes over and convinces people like okay well maybe we're more in common than we are divided or opposite uh and that's i think that's that's how i approach chris that's how my mom talked to melissa and i think that's the best way to actually change people's mind by just being yourself and it and showing who you are as a fellow human being
2: it's so beautiful, and it's so inspiring. It also takes tremendous patience. I mean, you, you talk about a lifetime of experiencing prejudice, first in your own country, and then in Germany, and then arriving here two weeks, three weeks after the 9-11 attacks. How do you keep your perspective and your calm? Yeah, that's
0: a good question people ask me all the time. But, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today, you know, a practicing cardiologist at Northside Hospital, serving the same community that welcomed my family as refugee if it wasn't for this country. I do believe hard work and, and being smart and opportunities are important to be successful. But I think this is only possible in America. I lived in Europe as a refugee. I was a refugee in my own country in Syria. I travel around the world. I never seen a place like this country that provides you the platform and the resources and the people to make you successful. And personally, you know, I have the education and the resources. And I feel like when I see my country is getting divided, you know, America, I have to do something to show how great this country is. You know, as a as a new American, I call myself. It's very important for me to show my fellow American who are born here how good we have it. And yes, we have our own issue, we need to work through it, but we need to important, important to realize this is the foundation of success. there's no, nowhere in the world, you could hear as many success story, like there's no way in the world a dishwasher can come to this country and become a doctor right across from the university that he used to serve, and now come back to the same community, become the hard doctor. And I think all those people tell me, what, what is that word? I'm like, the word is America. America explains all what I just told you. And I can't find a word to explain my story and my journey besides saying it's just America.
2: It was such a light bulb moment when Chris explained, after serving in the Army for 13 years, he had enlisted right after the 9-11 attacks. And he said, I was combating extremists over there. And in turn, I got myself turned into one. What went through your mind when he said that?
1: It's so heavy and it is so layered. I think filming Chris and filming his evolution and transformation in real time was, you know, it's so cliche, but like peeling an onion. And sometimes he would even say these incredible nuggets like that, even earlier in his process, he's really, really wise and really thoughtful. It was a little bit of a roller coaster ride with him as, as he was going through his healing journey. But when he says things like that, it also puts a mirror in front of you, you know, Den and I have talked and our whole team throughout this process, really the last three years or the time that Chris has been involved about how we set out to, you know, help the country and the world understand how resilient refugees are and what we have to learn from refugees and how we can be more welcoming of one another. And what we ended up doing by Haval forming this incredible relationship with Chris is, putting a mirror up in front of every single American, every single person in the world. We all have our own prejudices and we all, you know, there's some incredible quote that Den and I found a couple of years ago about how, when you're trying to make a difference, you know, like if you're an anti-racist, which, you know, we are and trying to make a difference. If you are so tied to the cause, you can end up becoming a monster yourself. I'm butchering the quote, but the idea is that we're all broken. And I think Chris recognizing that of himself gives us an opportunity to also recognize while we might not be extremists, we definitely have a lot of biases and we all need to address them and go on the same journey Chris did. Can you talk
2: about the creation of Hate Anonymous?
0: That's actually a great question. I think what you know, Chris, because being a former addict, you know, he'd been through these programs where he had to attend and go through his addiction problem. And, and he was telling me about the 12 step program. You know, I heard about it through my medical training, but I never really talked to someone who'd been through it. And he explained it to me what the process was. I was like, well, can you take that experience and create something similar for extremists, you know hate groups people who want to leave this group maybe uh and then he thought wow that's a great idea and then and he started working day and night and developed a program he works for parent for peace on it right now where he goes around the country and and help people you know how to address you know hate and extremism and he's still in a draft and implementation process right now and then but I thought just, you know, for me, I was like, okay, I, you know, just take your old experience and apply it to you know, what you've been through. And, and he, he's doing a great job. And again, Chris is not a person who, you know, as a PhD or a, someone who has like been doing this work, he just literally found a need in our country to be, a, you know, an issue to be addressed and took his experience and use a previous model that was there and kind of implemented it.
2: Yeah, it certainly comes across as a unique way to treat racism as an addiction in combating extremist groups. Do you think he will find success with this approach in terms of dismantling racism and hate groups?
0: I think what it would take, it would take an input from from the top all the way down. And I think, you know, something like a Chris story, his program, our interaction. Our work, we travel and we speak to various places about our stories. It does make a difference. How do you scale that and how you fund that? That's something that has to come from nonprofit organization. I mean, you know, social media companies are big part of the problem right now, and they're f- trying to find solution to address it. And they could be a great resource for people like Chris and I to work with us and how to because you know a community online is the same thing you could use it for bad things and you could use it also for good things i'm part of communities on, on facebook and other places where people like you know discuss health you know problem and they share good advice and you know the same thing could be forced to address you know some of the hate and racism in our country we have so but it can't be just relying on chris it has to be a you know, from the top down has to be a process and implementation and sponsorship and funding.
2: Directors and producers Aaron Bernhardt and Din Blankenship. Dr. Heval Kelly plays a leading role in the documentary. Refuge is available to stream through November 28th. More information about where to buy a virtual pass appears on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear from an Atlanta clothing entrepreneur who also happens to be a refugee. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright. It's great to have you along. Atlanta business owner and daughter of refugees, Archelle Bernard, opened the ethical fashion company Bombshell just about a year ago. The Pont City Market Store sells contemporary West African clothing made by an all-female staff of Ebola survivors in Liberia. When we spoke last year, Bernard first explained why she went to Liberia after graduating from Georgia Tech.
5: My family, we're Liberian refugees. So my mother and father grew up in Liberia and left because of the war. And my grandfather stayed in Liberia for a a long time. For me, when I graduated, I wanted to connect with home. In so many ways, I feel like I went back to hopefully see him, even though he had passed. Uh, And so I, I go and, you know, as I build my business, sometimes I have conversations with him in my head, like would he be proud of the way that I'm doing things or what would that advice be. Liberia was once such a shining example of an independent African Republic, and now we're consistently the poorest. I know that we as people are stronger and better than what we may seem to be right now, and I wanted to be a part of that, that story. Let's talk about the name of this
2: story. It's sort of a throwback. The word bombshell, you know, brings... Images of Marilyn Monroe to mind. It's sort of a mid 20th century term for uh, sexy beauty. Yours is spelled B O M B C H E L. And
5: why do you call the employees the bombshells? Well, I call employees bombshells and I call our customers bombshells because I really want to emphasize how connected we all are. We can't separate our makers from the purchasers because I think that that has a lot to do with putting space between us so that we don't care about the conditions that our clothes are made in. We have to know that we are all the same. I call everybody a bombshell. So whether you wear one, wear our clothes or you make our clothes, you are a bombshell because you're contributing to this new narrative for amazing, beautiful pieces coming out of West Africa that I don't think many people would think of without our factory. And in fact, then
2: bombshell with the C-H-E-L derived from your name is, is somewhat ironic, although empowering.
5: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I grew up in North Cobb. We were the only Black family in the neighborhood and therefore, for sure, the only African family. And, you know, my name was always weird, I went by Shelby for the longest. Oh, Art Shell is so much more elegant. I know. I went by Shelby for the longest because I just wanted to fit in, you know? I just really wanted to fit in. But the importance for me of spelling bombshell in that funky way that my name is spelled is that I'm saying, you know, this is it. I'm going to, I'll, you guys are going to learn my name. You're going to learn how to spell it. You're going to learn how to say it, you know? And it's just going to be okay. Okay. And for all the other girls who have super weird names, they'll learn how to spell it. They'll learn how to say it. And it's going to be OK. Oh.
2: the store bombshell in Ponce City Market. Please tell us about your decision to solely employ refugees living in Atlanta.
5: Well, I'm a refugee. And I think that when people look at me, they don't see it like I'm hiding in plain sight, you know, and as I sit in the background and hear conversations around me about what refugees are and where they should be allowed to go and how they should be allowed to get there, I think about what my family was able to offer me because they sought a better life. And I want us to normalize working around refugees, shopping with immigrants, people of color. I just, I feel like we don't really know everybody's background stories. And I think that the more we know, the more we can understand.
2: Indeed. Let's talk about the clothing and the merchandise. How would you describe the designs?
5: Well, I really love how contemporary our clothes are. You know, I think back to when my mom, when I was little and like I said, I was the only black girl at this school that I went to in Cobb County. And my mom would come pick us up from school in her full on African clothing, like head tie and everything. It was so embarrassing. And now this cloth is my life, but I do it in a different way. You know, I think every woman should be able to wear this African clothing, but she should be so comfortable. You know, we don't do any zippers, just a lot of elastics and a lot of wraps and ties so that things can fit a bunch of different body types in a way that is flattering to you. I feel like we've really reimagined the way people can wear African clothing so that you can feel, you know, I want to wear it casually in my home or I want to step out for a night or a nice drink. We just really try to fit a whole bunch of different lifestyles, ethnicities, skin tones, and body types. So I love that. And then I do a lot of hand dyeing. I learned how to hand dye in Liberia. And I I do a lot of hand dyeing now here. And with tie dye being so popular right now, um, a lot of our customers are coming in for the tie-dye, but then they're also discovering they like some of the African wax print. So in that way, it's just a lot of advocacy through fashion.
2: In addition to the contemporary designs you've described, do you sell any traditional Liberian garments in the store?
5: We sell head wraps, but for the most part, no. I think that in order for us to be widespread and to fit so many different people you know traditional Liberian garments would involve like tailors and sewing machines and your personal measurements and things like that and I want us to make sure that we get as many pieces on as many people as possible so that maybe there's a revolution that happens maybe everybody can start to see themselves in African fashion so not that much traditional wear, but all of our cloth is sourced from Liberia. We buy it from local market women. So in that way, everybody is still touching a bit of my home.
2: Arshel, why was it important for you to employ an all-female staff?
5: You know, women in Liberia ended the war and the women in Liberia have kept the country going, I think in spite of so many of the other things that have happened there. And so for me, I'm so, so sincerely proud to be a Liberian woman. I feel that that bit of my history is just a blessing from God. And I wanted to bring other women that looked like me into this fashion space. I felt like it was the way I could do my part. And tailoring and clothing making is typically a men's um, occupation in Liberia. So it was so, so important to me that women work here making women's clothes because nobody knows a woman's body better than a woman. For me, it was just so deeply important because it made business sense, but also as my way to, I guess, thank the universe for making me a Liberian woman as well.
2: What is the training process for the women who create the clothes.
5: Yeah. I hire different tailors from places around Monrovia, people that have made clothes for me before. And I bring each of them in for a day or two, to work with all of my team to sew the clothes. So I'll, maybe I'll design a pattern in Spain or here in Atlanta or whatever. I'll make that pattern. I'll take it to Liberia. A tailor will learn how to make it and then he will show our team how to sew it. So, as soon as we possibly can, we want our women to be the ones who are making this garment and to be the experts on it. So, usually it just takes about two or three days, and I'm aware of their skill set when I pick new patterns. But um, we can usually get new styles out the door in less than a week. Hmm.
2: Since opening the bombshell factory, In 2016, for Ebola survivors. What has been the impact on these women's lives?
5: One of our bombshells, her name is Miss Louise. She was in an abusive relationship when she first started to come work with us. It got worse as she was working with us because she was making more money than her husband and he didn't like that. And so many times her neighbors had to intervene when he would just be like, absolutely just beating her. And it got to a point where she made enough money that she was like, I actually don't have to do this anymore. And now she lives in her own home and she takes care of a lot of the family members because she's the most stable. So she takes care of her kids and a granddaughter and cousins. And whenever I go to her house, you know, she's in charge, but that is her home. So that is a big impact. And I, I love to have more You know stories like that because working with us gave her a a level of freedom that she wouldn't have had had she not worked with us there's another bombshell named beatrice and she's an ebola widow she didn't know how to read or write when she came to us she couldn't even sign her name to collect her salary and after working with us she is the breadwinner she is paying for her daughter to go to school her daughter is, is a teenager and she will be the first person in her family to have a formal education i mean it it just adds to what her daughter will be able to do one of our other bombshells blessing she has been working with us and after two years she had saved up enough to go to college she never even told me she wanted to go to college or we would have just paid for it but it was so important to her that she paid for her own school and now not only does she pay for her college but also for her two brothers to go to school because her mother is out of work right now with things happening in the economy in Liberia. So all of our team members are the ones that are holding up their family financially and also just independently, letting their family members know that women are are capable of having careers that take care of themselves and their families.
2: Arshel Bernard is the owner of Bombshell, Ethical fashion brand located at Pont City Market in Atlanta. More information about her store and the Liberian Bombshell Factory will be on our website wabe.org/city Coming up, actors Gina Rikiki and John Keebler. Tell us about theatrical outfits comedy, Baskerville, a Sherlock Holmes mystery. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for being here. Who killed Sir Charles Baskerville? Is there any truth to the legend of a supernatural hound? This sounds like a case for the world's most famous detective. And Theatrical Outfit is doing just that with the comedic mystery show Baskerville a Sherlock Holmes mystery. The cast consists of five actors portraying 40 different characters. Two of them join me now via Zoom. John Keebler, who portrays Sherlock Holmes, and Gina Rikiki, who plays 14 different characters. Welcome to City Light.
6: Thank you so much for having
4: us yes thank you for having us lois
2: john what is the mystery sherlock holmes is hoping to unravel here it is
4: a very complicated one it is one of murder and deceit and missing identities and subterfuge and escaped convicts and horrifying butlers it's just it's so crazy and, and it's almost. So crazy that it stumps Mr. Sherlock Holmes himself.
2: Okay, we should mention the story was written by Ken Ludwig, correct?
6: Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. And um, I am convinced, based on the number of insanely quick costume changes and character changes, that he is indeed a sadist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a fantastic sense of humor, but a sadist nonetheless. But we're doing full costume changes um, with Victorian era garb and wigs, and who boy?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, Gina, that was a question I actually wanted to ask. Portraying 14 different characters, how do you deal with wardrobe changes switching from one role to the next?
6: Well, it's um, very much like choreography. You end up having. A choreographed way of laying out your costumes and working with your team backstage in order to make sure that you are able to make the changes in sometimes two or three lines. But it ends up being this large dance. And um, we were on stage yesterday for the first time, which was amazing, and working with our set pieces as well. And so it really, there's a dance that's happening backstage, and there's one that's happening on stage. But I will say, after being so isolated during the pandemic, that all of these people had plenty of room in my head. So um, there was. It's it's a joy to be back in a real theater and to work hard. It's it, everybody in this cast um, is working really hard. You know, we have Lala Cochran, um, who is royalty. She's fantastic, and she is playing Watson. And we have Robin Bloodworth, and he's uh, another actor who's playing a number of different people. And of course, Robin is once again—he's—he's is, is Atlanta theater, theatrical royalty. And then we have another new person in this cast. Do you know this person, John? No, I don't. No, yes,
4: I do. <laughs> she is actually my fiance, who's playing all the male younger male parts as actor. Two, she's another actor that's playing about fourteen parts. And so, um, yes, we get to do another show together. And I must say, if they don't make their costume. Um, changes in time, you will get to see Sherlock do a little improv. Um,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Gina knows all about that with a decade at Dad's Garage.
6: Absolutely. These new folks, um, Katie uh, and... um, I forgot to mention
2: her name. Katie.
6: Dazzle and distract all these new uh, victims. I mean, friends. Mm -hmm. It's been so much fun.
2: Sounds like it. John... I see that you have a lot of Shakespeare on your resume. Anyone looking at your bio will laugh immediately at how you present your credits. So it's clear you enjoy shenanigans as you refer to them. Does that playfulness inform your portrayal of Sherlock Holmes?
4: Yes, it does. You know, one of the The blessings and the curses of playing an iconic character like Sherlock is one of the the curse being that everyone knows exactly how it should be played and everyone's granny to their uncle twice removed is going to come up to me at some point and say, well, you were too uh, mean or you were too goofy. Um, So that's the curse. The blessing of it is, is I get to take that material and kind of sift it through my noggin and try to come up with something that's kind of my own and so I'm a more playful actor overall and so I feel like you're going to see more of that from Sherlock he's not the stiff the way that uh you know Benedict Cumberbatch what a hack! Um, so uh you're going to see more more playfulness more goofiness a little um a little sparkle in his eye and maybe, maybe even a little ace into a pet detective occasionally. You know,
2: All righty then. I am on board for that. Gina, can you give us an overview of 14 characters or at least a few of them whom you think are essential to note here?
6: Oh, it would be my pleasure. I'll start with the simplest character, which is the baby that just says when. <laughs> um,
2: that. You nailed that. Nailed yeah. it.
6: Thank you. It, that was her audition. It was, it was. That was my entire audition tape. When? Wow. Um, but we have Mrs. Um, Basco uh, uh, who is Swedish. Then we have um, Mrs. Cartwright. Cartwright is a messenger boy. Um, we have a German maid. We mm-hmm. have a shepherdess. We have a maiden who is running from a terrifying man. Uh, yeah, so it's it really kind of runs the gamut, um, and then something I'm really not used to playing, which is Miss Stapleton, who is a love interest. So getting to lean into playing the drama of an actual love story has been pretty wonderful. She's
4: um, brilliant.
6: Oh, you, you're so sweet. Yeah, but yeah, it's each of us have these tracks with these wildly different characters. And it's been a joy to find out what their voices, their physicalities, really trying to make sure that each character is uh, crisply differentiated, that they're still grounded and that they really exist in this world.
2: How many dialect coaches were on board for this?
6: Uh, We have one and um, her name is Elisa and she is brilliant. Uh, Of course, in the time of COVID, we've done uh, Zoom dialect check-ins. And also our rehearsals have uh, been over Zoom so that uh, people who are working on the show, like our understudies or Elisa, who's helping us with our dialects, they can check in whenever they would like. Uh, And she's been tremendously helpful. Hmm.
2: Gina, I saw in your bio, you referred to... Um, what we have endured for the past 22 months as the pandy?
6: <laughs> um, yes, Lois. I've decided to name it the pandy-matinkin. <laughs> because truly um, it has been uh, something to be endured and at times celebrated. And also I love Mandy Patinkin. But it is the pandy-matinkin. So. Oh, um oh everybody has different names for it. I've heard uh, the panini. um, Everybody's, uh, I think, found different ways to cope with it. And for me, it's just calling it the panini.
2: Well, I I love your zaniness. I use zany in the most complimentary way.
6: Oh, I take it as a compliment. Trust me.
2: (laughs) I'm curious. This is not what one would think of as a traditional holiday season show. Why is this a good choice for bringing audiences back into the theater?
4: I think it shows off what theater can really do, which is something that movies and TVs and streaming services can't. It's a really good reminder of how magical theater can be, and this show has has it all. It has ups and downs and costume changes and uh, love and murder. And you get to see all of this happen in real time. So when things go wrong, you're right there with us. You can't push pause to go to the bathroom. You have to sit there and wait and be there with us. And it's, I think it's just a wonderful reminder of how important live performance is after coming out of this darker period. The pandy. The pandy. Yeah,
6: <laughs> if you will. And. Um... Theatrical Outfit really wants to create a holiday show that everyone can enjoy. All ages, there's nothing so shocking in this that you wouldn't feel comfortable bringing your kids to. I, I gotta say, there's something so magical about these giant set pieces yes, and these costumes yeah. and the tactile beauty of actually being inside a theater again. Uh, It's something, I think, that we've, we've been starved of a communal experience. And we can finally experience that safely together here. And it's super cool.
2: Actors John Keebler, who portrays Sherlock Holmes, and Gina Rikiki, who plays 14 different characters in Baskerville, a Sherlock Holmes mystery, Theatrical Outfits production is on stage in the Balser Theater at Harons through December 19th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., musician and activist Killer Mike stops by. We'll find out why he decided to add talk show hosts to his resume with the program Love and Respect with Killer Mike on our TV station, ATL PBA. City Lights senior producer is Kim Tro. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Wright, says. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.